Our first uh, reading tonight is from Romans at chapter 8, and that can be found on page 919. We'll be starting at verse uh, 26. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know how to pray as we ought, but that very Spirit intercedes with sighs too deep for words. And God, who searches the heart, knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. We know that all things work together for good for those who love God, who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn within a large family. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. What then are we to say about these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He who did not withhold his own son, but gave him up for us all, will he not with him also give us everything else? Who will bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? It is Christ Jesus who died, yes, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed intercedes for us. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will hardship or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all day long. We are accounted as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. The next reading is from Philippians, and that's on page 954. Chapter 2 from verse 1. If then there is any encouragement in Christ, any consolation from love, any sharing in the Spirit, any compassion and sympathy, make my joy complete. Be of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility regard others as better than yourselves. Let each of you look not to your own interests, but to the interests of others. Let the same mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not regard equality with God as something to be exploited, but emptied himself, taking the form of a slave, being born in human likeness and being found in human form. He humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God also highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus, every knee should bend in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. So uh, after the, over, the, over the last few weeks, we've been exploring um, the spiritual dynamics of the Christian life. Uh, dynamic is a great word. Uh, it's related to the word uh, dynamite, uh, of course, and both of them come from the Greek word dunamos, uh, which uh, is translated literally power. And what we've seen is that the power in the Christian life, the thing that leads to 
dynamic change and growth and depth and substance, the dynamic in the Christian life is this, this art that we've been exploring, the art of repentance and what goes with it, faith. Repentance and faith. That's how we start the Christian life. Repentance and faith is how we go on in the Christian life all of our life. And by now we know what repentance is, if you've been with us over the last few weeks. It's not that surface level activation of the will which says, that was a bad thing, I'm really sorry about that, I'll try much harder not to do it next time. It's good to be sorry about bad things. And it's good to try harder next time, but there's no power in that. There's no dunamos there because our wills, trying harder, are not the core of us. Our hearts are. Our hearts which love and desire and rejoice in that which they find beautiful or excellent. Which means that the only repentance with any power to it, with any dynamite in it, is heart repentance. So what's repentance? Repentance is to lift the over-desires of our hearts from something. A bad thing it might be. It might even be a good thing, overly desired. To lift the love of our hearts from one thing, extracting our heart's desire from that thing, and instead putting it in God, resting it in God. Repentance, faith. And the only thing powerful enough to, to get your heart to do that, to actually do that extraction process, the only thing that's powerful enough to do that is the beauty and excellence of the grace of Jesus Christ on the cross. That moment, that is a reality of such captivating beauty, of such divine excellence, of such luminous glory, that it alone will capture the love of our hearts so that we let go of those inordinate desires, that sin which is always behind the sin. We saw last week that this kind of repentance is an art. And it's an art in the sense uh, that it's not just automatic or mechanical. It's, it's quite possible to be perfectly convinced that God loves you and that God has forgiven you that he's adopted you as his child, and yet for those realities not to be really reordering the loves of your hearts, for, not, for those realities not really to be having an impact of dynamite in you. How is it that one person can be uh, hateful and bitter in their life and still believe the Christian gospel with full conviction? While another person can gradually change, as the Apostle Paul puts it, from one degree of glory to another, gradually putting to death that hatred and becoming a kinder and more generous person. How can that be? Why the difference? And the reason is that the art in heart repentance is to bring the grace of God into specific, what we called last week, Shazam contact with our disordered loves. 
in the Foundations Fellowship Group um, that I'm a part of, uh, we met this week, we were talking about this stuff, and in particular we talked about an example of uh, someone who lashes out when they're disrespected. Do you know, I mean, it wouldn't be you of course, the present company accepted naturally, but if you knew of someone else who, who when they're disrespected, just lashes out, it, it's quite easy to see it happening. Uh, it's actually quite easy to recognise that there's very little you can do about it. It's, it's a little bit less easy to say, sorry, that I was wrong. I mean, that's, that's a useful thing. But it's very difficult to change. Because for people like that, they crave respect specifically. Not, not being loved generally, not being approved of generally, but respect. And it's only as they bring the grace of God in the cross of Christ into direct contact with that heart desire. When the fact that in Jesus Christ God has shown you the ultimate respect. That he has taken you and your stuff with utter seriousness. In fact that Jesus bore the disrespect of everyone and around, everyone around him and ultimately of his own father, he took your sins with that seriousness. Precisely so that you can have the respect of a wearer of the crown of life. When, when the grace of God, you see, is fitted to you like that, you could, you could even call it bespoke right into the contours of your heart. Then, then change happens. Your craving of the respect of others falls off you like discarded clothes. It's like uh, just dropping off you like water on grease paper because you have the respect of the God of the universe in the sacrifice of the cross of Christ and so you change. Actually, you've changed already. Do you see? You've changed already because the most fundamental thing about you has already changed. Your heart has changed. And so next time that disrespect of your colleague or your neighbour will sting, but it won't get to your heart. Your heart's full of respect from God. And so you won't react badly. You'll have dunamos, power, the power of the Spirit at work in your life. Today then we wrap up this uh, series of sermons, particularly by asking what are the results of this approach to repentance? What happens when the kind of repentance that you practice is this kind of heart repentance? Our guide is uh, one of the great passages in all the Bible. It's the second half of Romans chapter 8. Uh, and you'll see on the outline that three things in particular happen. Firstly, you, you become a really integrated person. There's the integration of heart repentance. And then uh, secondly, you become that really very, very rare, very beautiful, very attractive person who combines both a real humble gentleness with an unshakable, glorious confidence and strength. So first then, um, the integration of heart repentance. 
Uh, in Romans chapter 8, Paul stands back and surveys the wondrous grace of God in the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's like having climbed a very high mountain uh, and he then stands out there from this vantage point of glory and he looks out in the valley immediately below and on the other peaks on the horizon and it's just this fantastic view. And his first summary of what he sees is the seamless whole of God's work. You see there in verse 28, we know that all things work together for good, for those who love God, who called according to his purpose. For those he, whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, in order that he might be the firstborn within a large family. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. This work of God progresses from before time to the end of time. God is absolutely in sovereign, glorious control. He's not thrown by sin or struggle or setback. He predetermines how he will act and his purpose in acting. He calls and he justifies and he glorifies and it's all centred on his son, Jesus, Messiah. It's Jesus to whom all will be conformed. Precisely because it's Jesus in whom we are saved. And what I want to do is just point out how different that is from the way that so many people experience the Christian life. Too often um, becoming a Christian, uh, perhaps later in life, or, or maybe uh, becoming a deliberate own-it-for-yourself Christian if you've grown up in the context of a Christian family... Well, it starts out as a matter of real joy. Sin is forgiven and love is experienced and hope is solid and church is thrilling. And, and then you go on in the Christian life. And for many people, what that consists of is trying hard and trying hard and then trying harder. And over time, the joy fades and the thrill departs. And for many, being a Christian becomes pretty much just about hanging on. The freedom, the joy of being justified by grace through repentance and faith is gradually replaced by a slog, the slog of being transformed by the sheer hard work of bashing your way through the sticky treacle of sin. And the harder you try, the less progress you seem to make. Lots give up. And they say, at least in their hearts, you know what, it's just, it's not going to happen. I'm, I'm not really going to be any different. I don't have it in me to change. I'm not perfect. I'm just forgiven. And some even give up on Christ altogether. This heavy burden of trying and failing again and again just overwhelms them. And they can't do it anymore. And do you see what a tragedy that is? Um, a, a friend of mine put it like this. He said that for, for many people, being a Christian has become grace all wrapped up in law. Grace all wrapped up in law. There's grace at the center of it. Ah, oh, yeah, yeah, what makes me right is grace, of course. That's what makes me right with God. But the grace gets lost in the day after day, week after week effort of trying harder. 
And that's the way it is with surface repentance. But heart repentance is completely different. What we're talking about is something that's altogether different from that. It's grace from start to finish. It's grace wrapped up in more grace. For the fundamental reason that it's only ever the grace of God that will change our hearts and it's only heart change that is real change at all. In other words, it's this heart repentance that follows Paul's seamless pattern in Romans 8. We are justified by grace through repentance and faith. And we are sanctified by grace. Exactly that same grace brought into direct and immediate contact with our hearts through repentance and faith. Justification, sanctification. Getting right with God, growing more and more like God. It's the same power at work. The grace of God in Jesus Christ. Let me, let me put it another way. See if you can, by now I'm hoping that you'll just understand this, right? You'll just, oh yeah, of course, that's how it is. Ready? So here's one way an author put it. He said, the freer the gospel, the more transforming the gospel. What do you think? Do you get that? The freer the gospel, the more transforming the gospel. You you think, no, 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 Andrew, come on, come on. The freer the gospel, the less people are going to work hard, right? No. The freer the gospel, the more sanctifying, the more transforming the gospel, because it's precisely the gospel's freeness. It's glorious, sheer, undiluted freeness that Jesus gives himself for us at ultimate cost to him and at zero cost to us. When we're his enemies, when we had nothing going for us, sheer, undiluted, clean grace, that is the most beautiful, the most love-captivating and therefore heart-changing and so life-transforming thing there is. The freer the gospel, the more transforming the gospel. And so as you live a life of heart repentance, you'll never suffer the misery of grace wrapped up in law. Because that will just grind your soul down slowly. Rather, as the Apostle Paul puts it in another of his letters uh, to the church in the town of Colossae. He says, as you've received Christ Jesus as Lord, that is by repentance and faith, so live in him the whole rest of your lives by that same repentance and faith in the grace of God, in Jesus Christ. Which leads then to the second point. Uh, you see, one of the most precious results of this approach, this heart repentance approach, is that you'll become this incredibly rare kind of person. Very, very attractive. This is, this is a, I think, a really beautiful thing, actually. You'll become a person of real gentleness. Or another way of putting it is to say you'll be more and more a person of deeply attractive Humility. When this spiritual dynamic is at play in your life, 
Uh, there'll be this soft gentleness about you. The, the fact is that it's not that difficult for most people to avoid the, avoid the kind of gross public sins and failures that lead someone off a cliff in life. Uh, there are lots and lots of people who don't murder anyone and who don't steal in any obvious way, who don't commit adultery, who aren't violent, who don't lie. They don't even cheat in their chosen sport. And, and if your vision of what it is to be a Christian is restrict, restricted to that sort of important, I mean, it's, it's good that people don't murder and steal and all that kind of stuff, that's important, but, but basically surface thing, if that's the level of your vision, then it, you see it's not very difficult to imagine such a person becoming slowly more and more arrogant and superior. Looking down at those who don't have their willpower, you see. Looking down at the violent and the thieves and the immoral. And they'll be praying a prayer in their hearts more or less that goes like this. Lord, I thank you that I'm not like other people. Do you feel this? I thank you that I'm not like other people. Thieves, rogues or adulterers, I pay my taxes, I help my friends, I give to church. And we know what Jesus says to the person of that prayer, right? You go down to your home, not justified. But when repentance is from the heart, because sin is from the heart, then it's much less likely that you'll ever get to that point of arrogance or superiority. Because it takes an extraordinary level of self-deception to persuade yourself that your heart is pure and clean, even if your behaviour is relatively above board. Uh, I've said it a few times, the renovation of our hearts is not like renovating a house. Renovating a house takes months. No, this is a lifetime renovation job, tentacle by tentacle, one by one, prizing the loves of our hearts from over-desiring that which is not God and settling that love upon the living and true God. And so you'll be attentive to the deep things of your heart, not just the surface things of your behaviour. And so there will be a softness to you, a gentleness that knows that while your externals might be a little bit more presentable than other people's, your heart is not really that different from anyone else's. You struggle with exactly the same dynamics as others do. The shape of it might be a little more outwardly respectable than for some, but that doesn't fool you for a moment. You see, there'll be a humility about you. You never look down at anyone else because you know your own heart. But notice, it won't be a crushed, despairing sort of humility, that sort of self-deprecating um, humility. There'll be substance about it. You see it, something of it in verses 26 and 27. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness for we do not know how to pray as we ought, but that very spirit intercedes with sighs too deep for words. And God who searches the heart knows what is the mind of the spirit because the spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. 
The whole journey of the Christian life, the Apostle says, will be characterized more or less by the experience of weakness, even to the point where you don't know what to pray. Of course, if all you've got to do is try a little bit harder to be a little bit nicer, well, there's nothing terribly complex about that. But if what you've got to do is to wean the love of your heart from, for example, the approval of others so that you treat them with honour and respect but not with desperation and with neediness, then, then, my goodness, you might well find yourself not knowing what to pray. But that's exactly where this substantial humility comes in because the glorious reality is that it's precisely in our weakness that the Spirit helps us. Spirit doesn't need to help us in our strength. He helps us in our weakness. God's Holy Spirit dwells in us and it's from within, from our very hearts, even from our very mixed, messed up hearts that he intercedes for us. He prays for you from out of the depth of your own being. And God, you see, who's God? It's God who searches the heart. Hears and answers and transforms. You you see what the gospel does to you? It's constantly sending you away from yourself. Even in the mixed messiness of your heart, it's the spirit who's there interceding for you. God searches the heart and the Spirit intercedes according to God's will and purpose which is precisely the next thing that the Apostle writes about namely that we be conformed to the image of his Son that is become more Christ-like to have a heart after Jesus' own heart. Do you see, if you practice this kind of heart repentance there will be this wonderful softness, this real humility Uh, Not thinking less of yourself. No, thinking of yourself less. Because you're thinking of Jesus more. And of course, I, I think the flip side of this is true too. To the degree that this kind of softness and humble gentleness is not present. That I think is is very often a tragic sign that the grace of the gospel is not really very operative in a person's heart. So there'll be this humility, this this lovely softness about a person, not, not prickly and hard when you practice heart repentance. But at the same time, it's really important to hear the other side of this as well. Because there are some of us of tender conscience who find all this talk of the heart actually sends us into a bit of a tailspin. Um, For for these kind of people, we we know our hearts all too well and the prospect of a lifetime of heart self-examination and seeking to reorder the desires of our hearts, well, it's all just a bit overwhelming. And so thirdly then, uh, the confidence of heart repentance. The truth is that there's a very particular confidence that comes with this approach to heart repentance uh, and it's the glorious strength of self-forgetfulness. You see it here in uh, verse 31 of Romans chapter 8. What then are we to say about these things? If God is for us, who is against us? 
He who did not withhold his own son but gave him up for all of us, will he not with him also give us everything else? And it's worth asking yourself the question, what's the everything else that God is supposed to give us here? Who will bring any charge against God's elect? Paul goes on. It's God who justifies. Who is to condemn? It's Christ Jesus who died, yes, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God and who indeed intercedes for us. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? The apostle imagines that we're on trial, that we're in the, in the dock, if you like, but it's almost a comic image that the apostle paints because the defendant is there and the judge is there, but there's no prosecution. You see what he says? Um, who will bring any charge? I mean, where is the prosecutor? Who, where's the lawyer? He'll bring any charge against God's elect. It's God who justifies. Uh, what Paul's saying is this. If God is the judge who sits on the bench, which he is, and if he's determined to declare us not guilty, which he has, that is, he's justified us, then who can bring charges against you? They'd be bringing charges against God's own verdict. And just in case we missed it, Paul adds another layer to the scene in verse 34. Not only is God the judge who has determined that we're innocent of all charges, Jesus is your defense lawyer. I mean, come on, what? does it get better than that? There is no prosecution and you've got Jesus as your defense lawyer with the judge already having decided in your favor. Who is to condemn? And we need to hear that because there is a danger for some of tender conscience particularly that this focus on heart repentance actually leads in its own kind of sad way to more condemnation. We feel the force of the condemnation of others. We even more feel the force of the self-condemnation of ourselves. And ultimately, the fear behind it all is that it is God who condemns us. And we say to ourselves, who wouldn't condemn me if they knew my heart? Who wouldn't condemn me if they knew my heart? And Paul faces those condemnations head on. And he stares them in the face. And he says, who is to condemn? Who is against us? Who will bring a charge? And his answer is no one. No one. No one. There is no one to condemn. There is no one who can bring an accusation against you. There is no one because God is for you. Do you see how this gives you the marvelous gift of strength not be to become obsessed with your own disordered heart? There is world-conquering strength and confidence here. But notice it's not a self-confidence, it's a Jesus confidence. It's this that gives you the capacity not to become absorbed in the darkness and subtlety of your own heart precisely because Jesus has conquered your heart. 
The whole point of heart repentance is that we have a vision of Jesus that is bigger than the sin of your heart. It's not so much that seeing yourself helps you to see Jesus, or there's, there's something of that movement. It's, it's actually much more the other way around. It's that seeing Christ helps you to see yourself. You can cope with seeing yourself, and in particular you can cope because it's as you see Christ, you won't get lost in yourself because you're lost in him, in his grace, in his beauty. Which is why this confidence is not a brittle confidence. It's not the sort of confidence that goes up and down and waxes and wanes depending on my performance this week. Have I lived up to standards? Have I been good enough? When the standard is your heart, the answer is pretty clear, isn't it? But the one thing that's even clearer is that since God is for you, God who has justified you, Jesus Christ who intercedes for you, the spirit who dwells within you. Listen to this. Then you don't need to make those terrible self-accusations and self-condemnations. They have no standing at court. They don't. They don't come from God. They're the flaming darts of the evil one in accusation. You can live in all the confidence that comes when the God of the universe, Father, Son and Spirit, is utterly for you. All right, let's uh, pause there. Richard mentioned that uh, we are going to provide an opportunity for uh, questions. Uh, if people have any the, the, uh, things that you'd like to kind of clarify, maybe not just from tonight, but over the, the, the whole series, this whole concept of heart repentance, um, we've got a few moments and um, we'll, we'll take from there. Then I've got a, just a comment or two to wrap up with uh, as we finish this series of sermons. So the, the question that's being asked is, when you, when you try and go through this process, and in particular using uh, a, a, a tool that we've been introducing in the fellowship groups, we're calling them DNA groups, uh, which is when uh, three or maybe four people uh, get together and um, kind of ask each other some fairly specific questions about how they're travelling in life that week, and something comes up, something pops up, and someone says, you know, yeah, I'm having a real you know, rough time doing this, and I don't want to do that, and... And so then the other people in the group say, all right, I know what, what, the, the, what, what I don't do is say, well, it doesn't matter. Right? That's, you don't do that. And on the other hand, nor do you go to the other extreme and say, well, that's hopeless and, and you've just got to try harder and suck it up and do better next time. You don't do that. So what do you do? What you do is you try and dig into what's happening in the person's heart. And so you ask yourself or you ask the other person the question, something like, well, what is it that you're desiring in that moment? And it turns out, bother, that's not an easy question. And it should be, you know, the whole Christian life should just be easy, shouldn't it? It should be just like falling off a log. I mean, come on, really, it just, that's how it should be. You just should know the answer to that question, just get on with it and bang. But it's not, is it? 
And I think particularly if you've, if, for, if a lot of our culture has been, I think our culture just generally out there in the world to change is just be more disciplined, that, that, that we're, we're actually really, really unskilled at knowing what's going on in our own hearts. And so I, I said to someone um, uh, in introducing this series that I thought this would be a five to ten year project for us as a community to actually upskill ourselves so that we know how to do this heart repentance kind of thing. Where I've got enough awareness of the operations of the heart so I know how to talk to myself, think through things, or I know how to talk to someone else in such a way that you, you get down not just one millimetre or two millimetres, but right down into the heart. Um, I'll say one other thing about it, which is the single best way to um, help someone else with what's happening in their heart is to understand how your own heart works. That is, the more self-reflection you're able to do on the kind of contours and texture and, and manoeuvres of your heart in the specifics, that it's, it's not just I want to be loved, it's not even just that I want to be approved of, it's not even just that I want to be respected, it's that I want, and I won't tell you my sin quite yet because it's being recorded, uh, but, but I've done some work and I, I have a sense of the, the very specific character of the love of my heart. And I've had to because it, there were, there were, there were, I, was, I was not what I should have been. I mean, I'm still not what I should be, but... And so this, this process of understanding the operations of one's heart, the, the Puritans, um, sort of the great classic um, Christians in the uh, 18th and 17th, 18th century, um, they called it being a physician of the soul. I think it's a really lovely phrase. Uh, how long does it take to learn to be a doctor these days? It's like about 28 years. Uh, so any med students here, that's, you, know, you know that journey. Uh, well, um, that's what we, we want to be as a community to each other. Physicians of the soul with each other. And it's going to take some training. And I say the best way uh, for you to help other people is for you to know your own heart. Why? And, and that happens when you do that other exercise that we looked at, examine, when you notice the inordinate emotional responses to things. You have a, a, a level two on the Richter scale event which provokes a level seven response. Your emotions just jump and you, you go, wow, that was interesting. I wonder what was happening in my heart at that moment to mean I responded to that level of thing with that level of response. What was going on in my heart? Uh, you can read literature about this. Uh, you read a uh, two... The best thing, maybe sometimes, is to read really good novels because the, what a novelist has is the ability to expose the operations of people's hearts in, this, in the sort of drama of the events. But there's no, easy, there's no easy way to it, actually. It's not like you just go, well, I read in a book. I mean, come on. That's how life works, isn't it? You read in a book and then... That's not how life works. I'm afraid to tell you that's not how life works. <laughs> so it's a great question. Uh, the answer is, you know, keep working at it for 10 years. Tash. Please.
Right. Sure. Okay, so Tasha's question, I think, is um, when you get Ten Commandments, uh, they just sound like commandments, right? Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not bear false witness. Love your mother and especially your father. You know, that kind of stuff. Um, one of the really interesting things about uh, this is, uh, do you remember what the first commandment is? You shall have no other idols, but uh, you shall have... You should have no other gods before me. Um, it's a very interesting thing. Martin Luther, who was right into this heart repentance stuff as well, in exactly the same ways we're talking about, said, made a very interesting observation or a, a comment. He said, you never break commandments two through ten without breaking commandment one. Do you see what an astute observation that is? That he's saying the only reason, the only dynamic that's at work in you to cause you to break commandments 2 through 10 is if you've put your heart's trust into some other God apart from the Lord. Um, I think that's a really useful insight to, to draw together actually this question of the Old Testament and the New Testament are actually on about the same thing. In fact, it's... it's uh, the case, when you think about it, that the Old Testament has an enormous amount to say about the, um, the essence of sin, the thing being wrong, as idolatry. Um, idolatry, which is um, represented by you know, a wooden statue or something like that. But all the prophets know that um, it's not the wooden statue that people are praying to, it's the spiritual power that the wooden statue represents. And most, um, most idols represent some kind of... Uh, uh, natural force or capacity. Uh, I think my favourite idol is the corn idol um, because they, there was a, a, a community of people that recognised that corn was the staple of their community and so they needed corn to have life. That's just exactly the same dynamic as what we've been talking about, isn't it? You, you sink your trust into something, some created thing that you think is what you need more than anything else for life. And the Old Testament is every bit as aware of this as the New Testament is, that actually the thing, the one, that you need for life is not, is not the fertility God, it's not the corn God, it's not the storm God, it's not the sun, it's not the moon, it's not water. Although actually when you think about it, you need all of those things to keep on going through normal physical existence, don't you? So they're not idiots, But it's the one who created all of those things. That's the one who's, um, uh, whose faithfulness and whose uh, love and whose power is actually what gives life. So I want to suggest that actually the Old Testament is every bit as aware of and entirely aligned with this approach altogether, actually. Uh, in the same way, in the New Testament, there's Colossians 3... Uh, 9 I think it is just says do not lie 
So it's not like there aren't straightforward moral commandments in the New Testament as well. My, um, uh, what I'm saying to you is that those commandments are never, in the New Testament, are never set out for us apart from this dynamic of God's grace to us, which leads to our heart repentance, which enables us to do the commandment. And you'll see that because every time uh, that the New Testament talks about sin, it uses that heart word, the, the over-desire word. Um, you remember it? Epithumia. And it says you'll never deal with the, the sins in your life, you'll never be obedient to the commands of God from your heart unless you deal with that epithumia by lifting it off and putting it on, by lifting your heart off that thing and putting it onto Jesus. So I think, I think New Testament and Old Testament are completely aligned in this, um, which is a really important thing to, uh, to, to, to see, actually. Jono, you asked me a question by text. Is it the same question? It is. Okay, so Jono asks, how is it, or why is it, that a person can hear and learn about the beauty and excellence of Jesus Christ and his death on the cross, etc., but still not really appreciate it, at least not in a way that gives the dunamos, the power necessary for true heart transformation. So remember this is back to my opening illustration. How is it that, and at which point I think I want to um, do a thing which is sometimes useful when approaching questions, which is to turn the question from being an abstract question into being a very concrete and personal question, which is for each, for each one of us, what, what do you think is happening for you if you're a believer in Jesus Christ? That means that you can be just completely convinced. You could do a 100 out of 100 exam on the grace of God. You could write an essay about it and tick all the appropriate boxes. And yet, and yet somehow there are points in your life and in my life where it hasn't transformed us. It's not, it's not that it's not real, the faith is real, it just hasn't got there, it hasn't transformed us. What's How is that? I mean, actually, for you. How is that? One way um, some Christians have tried to uh, answer this, based on, a, I think, an unhelpful translation in the NIV uh, version of the Bible, uh, of the word flesh, they've called it... The NIV originally in um, 1984, I think it was, when the first NIV came out, translated that Greek word flesh as sinful nature. You're familiar with that? And what happened then was this whole kind of idea came out that... Okay, now I understand. I've got two natures. I've got a godly nature and I've got a sinful nature. And that's just how it is. And these two things are at war against each other and that's just all there is to it. So that's why it doesn't work. Um, that, I think, is just a, a misunderstanding. The, Bible doesn't, the New Testament, I think, says that at all, actually. That's not how it uses that idea of flesh. My answer to this question is to say that uh, the, when the grace of God is not fitted to the particular shape of your over-desires, it won't transform them. If what you crave is respect and you haven't got that that need for respect is actually quenched in God's respect for you, although you're perfectly aware that he loves you, that's all fine, it just hasn't touched that particular nerve, then you will still be a brute when you're disrespected. 
You've got to fit the grace of God right into the nerve. That's why it's an art. That's why I need you, actually, to help me do that. That's why we need each other. That's why I think the DNA group's a really good idea, actually. Uh, yeah, I, I, um, another, another word that might perhaps be more useful would be the wisdom, the wisdom that's needed for heart repentance. Um, um, but it's still, the question just stands, doesn't it? How come I've asked for years and years to change in this regard, but I haven't changed? It's the same, just the same, another version of the same question. How does that work? It's because there's something about the, the, the insight of the asking that, that isn't in place yet. Um, let me uh, make another point um, which is related to this. I'll tell you when you will be changed. Okay, so here's a, here's a, here's a good way to uh, come at this from a different angle. Uh, uh, the Bible's perfectly clear that there will come a moment when, you are, when every false desire, every over-desire of your heart will be resolved and all your desires will be rightly ordered, and you will be changed completely. Uh, in the um, Christian tradition, this is called the beatific vision. The beatific vision is the vision that you have of Jesus, who is so beautiful that, like really, really beautiful things, what it does is it beautifies the person who sees the beautiful thing. And 1 John chapter 3, verses 1 to 3, talk about how we... we um, we don't know what we will be. We know what we are now. We're children of God. But when we see him as he is, when you have an immediate, total, accurate, full, direct vision of Jesus Christ, you'll be changed. Because all your loves will shuffle around and get reordered rightly at that moment. And he will be your all in all. He'll be so beautiful to you that it will change you in every way. So, so there's now and there's then. And the, the job now is to keep applying his, the beauty of his grace. And there will come a time when you'll see him as he is. And when you see him as he is, uh, you'll become like him. And the, and the apostle uh, John finishes that uh, sentence, uh, that verse, uh, by saying, all who have this hope in him purify themselves. That is, if, if that's what your destination is, if that's where you're headed, then what you'll do is you'll get started on that journey now, not just by sucking it up and trying harder, but by trying to see more and more of him now. That's just saying what we've been saying over this series. I think that's enough. Um, what is the result of repentance? Well, 
one of the result of repentance is it's kind of obvious. We gradually change our hearts. God gradually changes our hearts. As one by love, one by one, the loves of our hearts that are put onto the wrong things in the wrong way, at the wrong time and to the wrong degree, are shifted around so that they find their love in Christ. And when that's the case, it makes you this kind of um, lovely, humble, strong person. Do you know what I mean? It's easy to be humble without being strong and just be crushed. It's actually not that difficult to be strong without being humble and just be a jerk. It's incredibly rare and unbelievably beautiful to find a humble, strong person precisely because they're not humble and strong in themselves. They're humble and strong in the grace of God in Jesus Christ. And when you're like that, the more and more you're like that, you can join with the Apostle Paul with this kind of cry from the heart, who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will hardship or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all day long, we are accounted as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, in all of these things, in everything that can go wrong in life, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. It's the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord which saves us. And it's precisely the same love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord which transforms us. That is the glorious reality. The beautiful power, the dunamos of repentance from the heart. Amen.